Hello, you're listening to the Science of Everything podcast, episode 109, Weather Part 1. I'm your host, James Fodor. So in this episode, we're going to start a hopefully two-part series looking at the weather. And uh, as sort of a preparatory to that, in this episode, we're going to be talking about basic concepts that are important to understanding the weather, including humidity, atmospheric stability of uh, air parcels. We'll talk about cloud formation and different types of clouds and precipitation and also look at air masses. This will lead up into the next episode when we talk about different uh, types of uh, storms and weather patterns, including mid-altitude cyclones, tropical cyclones, thunderstorms, and concluding with a look at tornadoes. Recommended pre-listening for this episode is episode 90 on climate systems and some of the prerequisites in turn of that, which uh, gives some basic background that will be of help in understanding some of the concepts that I talk about here. So let's make a start and start talking about humidity. I think most people have a basic idea of what humidity is. It refers to the concentration of water vapor that's present in the air. Evaporated water is one of the components of air. It uh, forms only a tiny fraction of the air, but it is very important uh, for the development of weather. Contrary to what a lot of people think, you can't actually see water vapor in the air, at least under nearly all conditions. What people talk about as steam is actually a suspension of liquid water that is held in the air by by updrafts of hot air, including boiling uh, water vapor. But the water vapor itself, when it's actually in a gaseous state, is not generally visible. Uh, However, the air can hold a fairly large amount of water, the amount of water that's held in the air is uh, referred to as the relative humidity. So the relative humidity is expressed as a percentage, indicating the amount of water that's in the air as a percentage of the maximum possible amount of water that could be in the air at that temperature. So relative humidity is contrasted with absolute humidity, which describes the water content of the air expressed in a unit such as grams per cubic meter or grams per kilogram of air or something like that. So relative humidity is perhaps somewhat more useful uh, because you can tell how close the air is to being what's called saturated with water, which means air is saturated with water vapor when maximum possible amount of water vapor is present in the air at that temperature. And as I've mentioned a number of times, the amount of water vapor that can be present in the air depends on the temperature. The higher the temperature of the air, the more water vapor it's capable of holding. The dew point refers to the temperature at which a specific mass of air must be cooled down to become saturated with water vapor. So for example, if we start out with air at 30 degrees and there's a certain amount of water vapor content in that air, it might be at say 50% humidity. Then as we cool the air down, the amount of water in that air, assuming you know no other changes, stays the same, but the temperature goes down because we're cooling it down, thereby increasing relative humidity because the maximum amount of water vapor that can be held in the air is decreasing, but the actual amount that's in the air is the same. And so the percentage of water vapor in the air is a percentage of the maximum possible amount increases. And eventually it reaches 100%. And when that happens, that is referred to as the dew point. So that temperature at which the air becomes saturated with water vapor is the dew. So high dew points, as in high temperatures, indicate high humidity, meaning that you don't have to decrease the temperature of the air very much in order to reach uh, saturation. The amount of water vapor that can be held in the air increases roughly exponentially with temperature. So that means that low temperatures can only hold a very small amount of water, but higher and higher temperatures by by the time you get to 30, 40 degrees can hold much, much more water. And so you can have these sort of nonlinear effects of changing the temperature and how much that changes humidity. 
as we'll see going forward, this can play a very important role in a wide range of weather phenomena. Okay, so with the concept of humidity under our belts, then let's talk about the concept of atmospheric stability, which is extremely important for weather. So atmospheric stability is a measure of the tendency of the atmosphere to impede or discourage vertical motion. So the basic idea here is that what happens when a parcel of air or a quantity of air is caused to be lifted by some force. There's a number of so-called lifting mechanisms that can cause air to rise up. And I'll just go through them briefly before we come back to atmospheric stability, uh, because we need to understand sort of how vertical air motion can get started in the first place. So one of them is called orographic lift. This refers to air being pushed up over mountains. So if they're sort of moving along across the surface and there's a mountain range in the way, the air obviously has to go over the mountain and so it's pushed upwards by the mountain. So that's one cause of lift. Another cause of lift is called frontal lift. We'll talk more about this when we talk about fronts. But the basic idea is that one air mass uh, will be pushed up over a cooler air mass at, at a front when two masses of air sort of come into contact with each other. The warmer one goes over the cooler one, thereby causing it to lift. The third type of lifting mechanism is called convective lift. This occurs when the uh, sun heats up the ground or water, and which thereby heats the overlying air, causing it to expand because warmer air expands, as we've talked about in previous episodes. And as air expands, it becomes less dense and then it rises. So air that's warmed will rise. And finally, convergence lift. This occurs when there is a low pressure system. Low pressure systems can occur for many reasons. We talked about them in some of the previous Earth Science related episodes. And if there is a low pressure system, for whatever reason, air will move inwards. And then once it's moved inwards, it has to go somewhere. And so it sort of pushes upwards. So it sort of moves inwards, collides, and then pushes upwards because there's nowhere else for it to go. So that's called convergence lift and is another mechanism by which air can be pushed upwards. So for whatever combination of these factors leads a given amount of air to be pushed upwards in the first place, we can then ask the question, under what conditions will it continue to move upwards or under what conditions will it sort of stay where it is? And this is what atmospheric stability relates to. So to determine whether an air parcel is going to be stable when it's moving upwards, uh, we need to understand a concept called the lapse rate. The lapse rate is the rate at which an atmospheric variable, in this case it's temperature, so the rate at which the temperature in the Earth's atmosphere falls with altitude. As we've discussed previously, temperature decreases with altitude. That is the case pretty much everywhere. There are exceptions called inversion layers, but basically it's true everywhere. But the question is, how quickly does temperature fall with altitude? And that does change uh, depending on the local atmospheric conditions. And so the name that's given for this rate of cooling with altitude is called the lapse rate. Now, the other concept that we need to understand is that of adiabatic cooling and also adiabatic heating. But adiabatic cooling is the most relevant one here. Again, we've talked about this in previous episodes, I think, where we talked about gas laws. But the basic idea here is that rising air expands and cools due to the decrease in air pressure as altitude increases. So with higher altitude, the air pressure is lower because there's less air sitting on top of it to sort of compress it down. By the ideal gas law, PV equals NRT. Uh, again, if you haven't heard that, you should go back and listen to episode 42 on gases and gas laws for a, a refresher. But the idea here is that if the pressure has decreased and the amount of air stays the same because you know air doesn't just disappear, then what has to happen is some combination of the volume increasing or the temperature decreasing. And both of those things, in fact, happens as air rises. So because the pressure decreases and the amount of air is constant, you get an expansion of the air. So the volume increases, it takes up more space, but also the temperature falls. Essentially, and this is sort of a loose way of thinking about it, 
the energy that's embodied in the thermal motion of the air molecules. Some of that goes into doing work on the surrounding gas to sort of push out the space to, to make the space for the increased volume of air. And that's extracted from the thermal motion, thereby reducing the thermal uh, energy and thereby reducing the temperature of the gas. Again, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that's a loose way of thinking about it. So the point is when air rises, it expands and cools. That's called adiabatic cooling. Adiabatic heating is the reverse phenomenon. When air falls, it warms up for the exact opposite reason. Now, again, this always happens. Uh, adiabatic cooling is a phenomenon of any rising gas in the atmosphere. But the rate at which air cools as it rises, again, depends on uh, local conditions and various factors. And in particular, there are two rates that are most relevant to uh, the discussion here of atmospheric stability. There's the moist adiabatic rate and the dry adiabatic rate. The moist adiabatic rate is the rate at which a saturated ascending parcel of air cools by adiabatic cooling. When we say moist, we, we mean that it's saturated, so it has the maximum amount of water that's possible for air of that temperature. The dry adiabatic rate is the same, but for unsaturated air, so it's just any air that doesn't have the maximum amount of water in it. Now, you might think it's odd as to, well, why is there just one for the maximum 100% saturation and one for anything less than 100%? Wouldn't it like vary? by the water composition? Well, not really. And the reason for that is because the latent heat of condensation, that is the energy that's released by the air as it cools and it releases energy going from a gas to a liquid form and thereby condensing out of the air, increases the temperature of the air and thereby means that the dry adiabatic rate is higher than the moist adiabatic rate. So to put that another way, as moist air rises, it has an extra factor that warms it up somewhat, not warms it up in an absolute sense, but keeps it warmer than it would otherwise be. And that is the energy that's released from condensing the water in the air from a gas into a liquid. That's called the latent heat of condensation. It helps to reduce the rate at which the air cools. Uh, but that only happens when you have actual condensation. That will only occur when the um, dew point is reached, and that only occurs for saturated air. So it's, it doesn't matter so much what percentage saturation the water the air is it's just a question of has it reached the uh, dew point yet or has it reached 100 percent saturation at that point it will switch from undergoing the dry adiabatic rate to the moist adiabatic rate now a few times i've used the phrase a parcel of air that just basically refers to a bunch of air that has specific pressure and temperature properties and that we track over time it doesn't have an extremely precise definition at least for, from our perspective so just think of it as like a bunch of air uh, another way to think about this if it helps is imagine blowing up a balloon and then releasing it and, and you know it, as it rises up in the air or whatever or floats away or whatever happens to it the air in that balloon could represent a parcel of air that's bounded by the balloon but it doesn't have to be physically bounded by anything it's more of a concept than anything else anyway a given parcel of air experiences either the moist or the dry adiabatic rate depending on its moisture content as i just mentioned before so to, to bring these two concepts together the adiabatic rates and the lapse rate to understand atmospheric stability we have to think about a parcel of air that's rising upwards or that starts rising for whatever reason. It could be any of the lifting mechanisms that I mentioned before. So the parcel of air starts to rise. The question is, will it continue to rise? That's the question of atmospheric stability. To answer that question, we need to first consider, is the parcel of air experiencing the moist or the dry adiabatic rate? That just depends on its relative humidity. The other question we have to answer is, what is the ambient lapse rate of the surrounding air? 
Now that, as I mentioned, depends on local environmental and climatic conditions. But this just refers to the rate at which the temperature changes with altitude or decreases with altitude in the surrounding non-moving air. So the air surrounding the parcel isn't moving, it's just kind of sitting there doing its thing. The parcel of air is rising up. It, the rising parcel of air, is going to cool down because of adiabatic cooling. The surrounding air is not cooling down because it's not rising up, but it's colder at higher altitudes uh, because that's a property of the atmosphere under most conditions. And so the rate at which the stationary air cools, without, cools with higher altitudes is the ambient lapse rate, and that can vary with environmental factors, whereas the rate at which the rising parcel of air cools with altitude as it moves to higher altitudes is either the moist or dry adiabatic rate, depending on whether it's saturated. So now let's think about how these two things relate to each other, the ambient lapse rate and the adiabatic lapse rate. Now the key thing to ask is whether the ambient lapse rate is higher than or lower than the adiabatic lapse rate. If the adiabatic lapse rate is lower than the ambient lapse rate, this means that the air that's being displaced upwards cools more slowly than the surrounding air, the ambient air. So the adiabatic lapse rate is lower than the ambient lapse rate. Lapse rate. This means that the rising air cools down more slowly because the lapse rate is just how fast does it cool. If this is the case, this means that the rising air, the air parcel, becomes warmer relative to the surrounding atmosphere. Not absolutely warmer, it's still cooling down, but warmer compared to the surrounding atmosphere as it rises up. Now we know that warmer air is less dense and therefore tends to rise further. So in this situation, the air mass keeps rising and therefore the air is said to be unstable. So again, if the adiabatic lapse rate is lower than the ambient lapse rate, the air cools down more slowly, which means it gets relatively warmer compared to the surrounding air, and therefore it keeps rising because it's less dense. That's unstable air. So the idea here is if you sort of give that air an upward push through one of the lifting mechanisms we mentioned, it will keep going up. Conversely, if the adiabatic lapse rate is higher than the ambient lapse rate, that means that the air mass that's displaced upwards cools down more quickly than the ambient air. If the air becomes cooler than the surrounding atmosphere, that means it's more dense and will tend to fall or at least resist upward motion. Such air is said to be stable. So if the air gets relatively warmer than the surrounding atmosphere, it will keep going up and therefore is unstable. If the air gets relatively cooler than the surrounding ambient air, it will become more dense and therefore it will resist upward motion and it is stable. There's a third possibility which occurs when the ambient lapse rate is between the moist and the dry adiabatic rates for the parcel of air. Because in this condition, initially, the parcel of air will be unsaturated because it's at a lower altitude, it's warmer, and therefore its relative humidity is going to be lower. It therefore cools down at the dry adiabatic rate, which is relatively faster. And that means that under this condition, when the air is at a lower altitude and when it's unsaturated, it's stable. Because at the dry adiabatic rate, it cools down faster than the surrounding air, therefore meaning that it gets more dense and that it won't rise further. However, if the environmental lapse rate is just such that it's between the dry and the moist adiabatic rates, what happens is once the air parcel reaches a critical elevation, it will reach saturation, so 100% humidity. And when that happens, it will stop rising at the dry adiabatic rate because it's not dry anymore. And it will start rising at the moist adiabatic rate, which is slower. That is, it cools down more slowly because of the additional energy of the water con condensing out, uh, causing it to heat up a bit more. Therefore, under this condition, the air is actually becomes warmer relative to its surroundings and therefore becomes less dense and therefore rises. So 
the basic point here is that if the environmental lapse rate is between the dry and the adiabatic lapse rates, you can have a condition where, uh, which as I mentioned is called conditionally unstable, whereby the air parcel is stable as long as it doesn't rise too much, but if it's forced to rise too much for whatever reason, it will switch from being dry to moist because the relative humidity goes up and therefore it will become unstable. And so the, this is a particularly interesting combination which can give rise obviously to interesting weather phenomena whereby you can have a stable situation but then if something shifts it, it can become unstable and therefore it will keep rising. Okay, that is a brief summary of atmospheric stability and, and this is, although it might seem a bit arcane, you know, why do I care if an air parcel keeps rising or not, the reason this is important is because rising air and whether air keeps rising is critical for pretty much all of the, F, uh, of the weather phenomena that we're about to look at, including cloud formation, precipitation, air masses, fronts, cyclones, and everything else. It all depends on rising air. And so if, if air is not, if air, is, air parcels are stable, it won't keep rising, and therefore you don't get these weather phenomena, or at least they're much rarer and more difficult to form under stable conditions. Most of the interesting weather phenomena that we're going to look at occur under unstable atmospheric conditions. As an introduction to that, let's start by talking about clouds, which are obviously a very familiar weather phenomenon. So a cloud is an aerosol consisting of a visible mass of liquid droplets or sometimes frozen crystals and other particles suspended in the atmosphere. So aerosol being liquids or sometimes solids suspended in a gas. As I mentioned before with humidity, clouds aren't, don't consist of water vapor. I mean, there is water vapor in them. But what we talk about as the cloud, I guess, is, well, it's the atmosphere plus the stuff in it that we see. So what we're seeing are the visible liquid droplets and frozen crystals and, and other stuff, including sometimes pollutants. Uh, that, that's what reflects the sunlight, and that's what we actually see as the cloud. So, I mean, a cloud in that sense is mostly air, but it becomes visible because of the, the things in the air. Clouds can form pretty much whenever air becomes saturated, meaning, of course, that the air reaches 100% humidity, water then begins to condense out of the air and forms liquid droplets. Now those liquid droplets don't immediately fall as rain because the liquid droplets that form initially in most cases are extremely small, much smaller than raindrops. So a typical raindrop is about two millimeters in diameter, obviously it varies a bit, whereas a typical cloud droplet is about 0.02 millimeters, so about one one hundredth of the size of a rain droplet. So when you're talking about liquid water in the atmosphere, again, this is not water vapor, which is what contributes to humidity. Here I'm talking about liquid water droplets. They can remain aloft in the atmosphere if there's a balance between the force of gravity, which obviously pulls them down, and forces that push them up. So what might those forces be? Usually it's air currents or uplift of air that push it, usually warm air, but not necessarily, that's pushing it upwards. So clouds often form when there's some force that some lifting mechanism that causes a, a massive air to move upwards, so or a graphic lift, frontal lift, convective lift, and so forth, that I mentioned before. If that air is unstable, then it will continue rising. As the air reaches uh, dew point, so as it reaches 100% uh, humidity, the moisture in the air begins to condense out, forming uh, liquid droplets. Those droplets will often stay suspended in the air, at least for a time, because of the force of the air pushing upwards on those droplets because the air is continuing to rise or like new air is rising up underneath it so they're pushing it upwards so basically updrafts of air help to keep the water droplets suspended in the atmosphere and you don't have to have a very high like a very large force for that 
to be possible because they're not very large. And so basically there's, like many other things, there's a balance. If the water droplet becomes too large, then the upward force becomes too small relative to the downward force of the uh, force of gravity acting on it. Basically because the upward force depends on the surface area of the, the droplet because that's the area over which the upward force can act, the surface of the droplet, whereas the downward force of gravity just depends on the volume of the droplet, which of course affects its mass and gravity is dependent on mass. So basically the water droplets can stay suspended in the atmosphere so long as they don't get too big. When they get too large, they fall as rain or some other form of precipitation, which we'll talk about uh, in a moment. Now, I mentioned that if the air becomes saturated, then water condenses out of it and forms water droplets, which uh, typically form clouds. However, that's not quite true because for clouds to form, water doesn't just spontaneously condense uh, out of the atmosphere, even at 100% humidity. For that to occur, you need what are called cloud condensation nuclei, or sometimes just condensation nuclei, uh, if it's not in the context of a cloud. But these are small particles, typically uh, only a few hundred nanometers across, so much smaller even than the, than the cloud droplets, uh, which I mentioned are smaller in turn than rain droplets. Uh, so these are very tiny particles. And basically they're just like specks of smoke or pollution or soot, uh, bits of sea salt, dust, clay, really any stuff that's been caught up in the air. Sulfates from volcanic activity is another example bits of organic matter that have found their way into the atmosphere. So very, very tiny particles we're talking about. Any of these types of particles can act as a condensation nuclei. And basically this is just a surface that the tiny droplets of water begin to condense on and sort of join up together. Without these cloud condensation nuclei, it's extremely difficult for water to condense out of the atmosphere. And I think I read somewhere that you have to get to something like 400% relative humidity in order for water to spontaneously uh, condense out of uh, a context in which there are absolutely no condensation nuclei. Of course, that's extremely unlikely to happen because there's always stuff in the air, even if in very tiny amounts. And you don't need many of these things to uh, to get the water to condense. But anyway, cloud condensation nuclei are small particles that allow the water vapor to condense at, uh, once you reach 100% humidity. Uh, they condense out of the atmosphere, and as long as they may, remain suspended in the atmosphere by updrafts of air, they form clouds. There are many different ways of classifying clouds. Anyone who looks up at the sky can tell that there are different types of clouds, and people since time immemorial really have classified them in different ways. Modern methods of cloud classification are typically based on the altitude of clouds, as well as their method of formation, vertical stratification, and physical properties or appearance. I'm going to talk a bit about the different types of clouds. First, I'll talk about the physical forms of clouds, like mostly based on their appearance, and then I'll talk about different categories of clouds based on their altitude, high-level, mid-level, and low-level clouds. It's obviously quite difficult to talk about cloud types without being able to show you what they look like. I'll post a few diagrams on the, the Facebook so you can get a visual idea. But, but because many of you will have seen these clouds at various times, hopefully you, you will have some idea of what I'm talking about and you can sort of visualize it a bit. And again, there are many types of classification systems or degrees of detail. I'm only going into a modest degree of detail because... This is just an introductory podcast and there's no need to get overly complicated. So first of all, let's talk about some of the physical forms of clouds. Uh, one property of clouds is called stratiform. Now stratiform clouds uh, appear in a stable air mass condition. So already we're bringing that concept of atmospheric stability in. So when I talk about stable or unstable conditions or atmospheric conditions, again, that's referring to whether air that begins to be pushed upwards by some lifting mechanism, whether it continues to move upwards or whether it sort of gets stuck and stays where it is. 
And so that's very important for cloud formation, as we'll see. So stratiform clouds appear in stable conditions and have a flat sort of sheet-like appearance, and they can form at any altitude. So on an overcast day, if the, if the sky just looks like, looks like there's a carpet over it, that's called a stratiform clouds, or it'd likely be stratiform clouds. Uh, another descriptive term is cirriform. This is spelled with a C. Cirriform clouds are a type of clouds that look like semi-detached or partly merged filaments. So they're kind of like long and stringy. They form high in the atmosphere. One thing I should mention is that when I talk about the atmosphere here, I'm always talking about the troposphere, which is the lowest level of the atmosphere, up to about 10 kilometers up. And basically all clouds and all of the clouds that we will talk about occur in the troposphere. So a few types of clouds can sometimes poke up into the stratosphere, and there are very specialized forms of clouds that occur at higher altitudes, but pretty much all clouds, and for that matter, most weather phenomena occur in the troposphere. So I talk about the different levels of the atmosphere in episode 89 on the atmosphere, so have a check back at that if you want a refresher. But hitherto and, and previously when I talk about the atmosphere, I'm talking about the troposphere. So these cirriform clouds, which look like long stringy filaments, they occur at high altitudes. Then there are cumuliform clouds. Now these appear as like uh, heaps or tufts or kind of like cotton balls. These are sort of the, I guess, the canonical stereotypical cloud. If you were to draw a cloud, you'd probably draw a cumuliform cloud or you know a stereotype form of it. Now these are generally more localized than the stratosform clouds, just like carpet the sky. Cumuliform clouds occur under more localized conditions of lift, which is why they're more localized rather than covering the whole sky. A fourth major type or, or sort of property of clouds is uh, stratocumuliform. Now these are clouds of structure that have a combination of cumuliform and stratoform, as their name indicates, stratocumuliform. So they're just kind of a cross between stratoform and cumuliform clouds, uh, because obviously there's a continuum. Generally, they result from more limited instability, so in other words, more stable conditions. Often when there's an inversion layer, so that's a temperature inversion that prevents upward motion of the air, and that can keep a sort of a more blanket cloud formation. And the last form of cloud, or sort of property characteristic of clouds that I'm going to mention is cumulonimbiform. It's a bit of a tongue twister there. But these are very large clouds that have towering vertical extents. So I mentioned before that vertical stratification is one property of clouds. This means how much they have vertical structure. Most clouds are more or less flat or flattish relative to the atmosphere, but cumulonimbus clouds or clouds that have uh, cumulonimbiform properties or characteristics have very substantial vertical extent and cover a wide range of altitudes throughout the atmosphere. They occur in highly unstable air, as you might expect, given that they have a large vertical extent. So basically what we've covered here are sort of five types or physical characteristics of clouds. So there's stratosform, which is like flat like a sheet, they occur in more stable conditions. Cirriform, like stringy, they occur at very high altitudes. Cumuliform, that's sort of puffy or tufts, they occur under sort of more localized unstable conditions. Stratocumuliform, combination of stratoform and cumuliform, so combination of sort of sheet-like and puffy. And cumulonimbiform, which are vertically extended. These are also the types of clouds that give rise to thunderstorms and a lot of rain, as we'll talk about later. Um, and these clouds uh, typically form under very unstable conditions. Okay, so that's the basic sort of physical characteristics of clouds. Now I'm just going to talk a bit about the different uh, types of clouds that form depending on the altitude. So let's start with high-level clouds. These occur at altitudes from 3 to 8,000 meters in polar regions, and then it changes a little bit depending on the temperate regions and the tropics. 
Um, I'll probably just give the numbers for, for polar regions just for simplicity, because otherwise there's too many numbers. But, but bear in mind that the atmosphere is different thicknesses at, at uh, different altitudes. So the altitudes are generally much higher at the tropics than at the polar regions, because the atmosphere essentially bulges in the, uh, around the equator because of the Earth's rotation. So these high altitude clouds are many kilometers up and are divided into three main categories that I'll talk about. First of all, there are the plain cirrus clouds. So these are fibrous wisps of very delicate cirriform ice crystal clouds. They show up very clearly against the sky and often occur near the, the jet stream, which I've talked about in the past. I won't go over that again here, but jet stream is high altitude, very fast moving air. These clouds don't produce any precipitation. In fact, I don't think any of the cirrus clouds produce significant amounts of precipitation. So the next type of cloud that I'll talk about is uh, cirrocumulus. So these are very pure white puffy clouds. So they look like basically a, a bunch of those puffy clouds, but very small far away, which is kind of because that's what they are. So if, if you see sort of very white looking clouds that are kind of puffy, but, but with like small dots or like, I guess, uh, kind of like a network of blue between them, that's kind of, you're probably looking at a cirrocumulus cloud. They're composed of ice crystals and other supercooled water droplets. And then finally, we've got the cirrostratus clouds, which is like the stratus form of the, the cirrus. So this is a thin ice crystal uh, that appears, again, at very high altitudes. It tends to give rise to halos because of refraction of the sun's rays, so they can cause the sun to stand out uh, very clearly. They, they're extremely wispy, and they, so they don't have clear threads in them like the cirrus clouds do, nor are they a little puffy like the cirrocumulus clouds. They uh, can give rise to very uh, interesting optical uh, effects due to the uh, diff diffraction of the, the sun there. Now let's move from the high altitude to the mid-altitude clouds. So as you would have noticed, the sort of prefix that's used is is uh, is cirro is or cirrus for high-altitude clouds. The accompanying or related term for mid-level clouds is alto. Alto clouds form from around 2,000 metres uh, up to around 4,000 metres near the poles and then a bit uh, higher shifted up at their more mid latitudes. So let's think about as being between maybe two to three kilometers, and then three kilometers up above is the high altitude clouds. There's two main types that I'll talk about here. There's the alto cumulus and the alto stratus. So you can probably get an idea of what these are. The alto stratus are like the carpet-like ones. Alto cumulus are like the puffy ones. The main difference in terms of the physical appearance is just that the alto stratus clouds are much less diffuse than the, the cirrostratus clouds. They don't give the give rise to that halo optical effect thing. Alto cumulus clouds are, appear kind of bigger and more separated, uh, partly just because they're much closer and so that they don't appear as the kind of particulate uh, as the um, cirrocumulus clouds do, but otherwise they're sort of broadly similar. Alto stratus clouds can sometimes produce precipitation, especially if they're a bit darker, but again, most middle altitude clouds don't produce that much in the way of precipitation. Precipitation, as we see, mostly comes from vertically uh, structured clouds. Moving now to the low altitude clouds. Uh, now these ones, unlike the mid and the high altitude ones, don't really have a special prefix for them. The three main types are stratus cumulus and stratocumulus. So again, hopefully you're seeing the pattern now. Stratus refers to like the carpet-like ones, cumulus is the puffy ones, stratocumulus is kind of like a combination of the two. At low altitudes, the stratus ones, the stratus clouds look pretty similar to alto stratus. They're just kind of a bit, they're thicker, often darker, though not always, and often resembles fog that's just been elevated with, because essentially that's what it is. Only typically quite weak precipitation occurs from stratus clouds, whereas cumulus clouds are the really big puffy stereotypical clouds that you probably think of. They indicate fair weather, usually occurring in relatively stable conditions, but with localized instability. 
as we'll see a bit later. Stable atmospheric conditions usually means that it's going to be sort of warmer and sunnier, or at least sunnier, and we'll talk a bit more about why that is later. And at this low level, both clouds are made up of uh, air droplets rather than ice crystals in, in most conditions here. So the basic way I think about it is that you've got your low-level clouds, which are the stratus, they're the carpet-like ones, and the cumulus, which are the puffy ones, and then there's stratocumulus, which is like a combination of the two. And then you've got the variance of those at middle and high altitudes. So you've got your alto stratus, your alto cumulus, your cirrostratus, your cirrocumulus. And then there's uh, a cir another type of clouds at high altitudes called cirrus, which are the very uh, wispy, streaky ones that you don't really get at lower altitudes. So again, that's one way of classifying clouds. You can go out and have a look and see what clouds you can see in the sky now or uh, next time you go outside or next time there are clouds around. But we haven't yet talked about the vertically stratified clouds, which are in some sense the most interesting clouds. However, I'm going to put that on hold until we get to talking about storms, thunderstorms, and also mid-altitude cyclones uh, and other related phenomena, because that's basically where these clouds including the cumulonimbus and the nimbostratus clouds really come to shine because uh, these clouds occur in highly unstable atmospheric conditions that give rise typically to most of the precipitation and other interesting phenomena as well. So we'll come back to those types of clouds in due course. For the moment, I just want to mention a few other things. So fog is basically just a cloud that is makes contact with the ground. If we vertically categorize the clouds that we've talked about, fog is any cloud that touches the ground, so from altitude zero up to wherever. Low altitude clouds are anything below two kilometers. Mid-level clouds at the poles is anything from about two to three kilometers or a bit higher at mid-altitudes. High-altitude clouds is anything from, say, three kilometers to up to a maximum of 10 kilometers, but more uh, around the tropical areas. So most clouds uh, that we probably think about and interact with are occurring at the mid and the low levels, and so those are up to probably only a few kilometers high. So most Jet aircraft travel, I think, just around the top of the troposphere. So they're going to be above most of the clouds, not all clouds. But uh, that's one of the reasons why you'll often see yourself flying above the clouds, uh, because most of the clouds that you know we sort of interact with typically, apart from cumulonimbus, but the, uh, the non-vertically stratified ones are mostly well below aircraft uh, cruising altitudes. Coming back to fogs just briefly, there's a, many reasons why fog can form, but some of the most common types of reasons why fog forms are radiation fog, this is caused by cooling of the land after sunset. So obviously the incoming solar radiation stops at sunset and thereby uh, emission of radiation by the now cooling land uh, cools down the land, which cools down the above air, which then causes the air temperature to fall, reaching the dew point, thereby causing water vapor to precipitate, forming fog. Another type of common cause of fog is called advection fog. This occurs when moist air passes over a cool surface by basically wind, it's pushed there by differences in pressure or whatever other factor, and is thereby cooled. So the difference here is that it's not stationary air that's cooling because it's getting dark, it's air that was moist that's then cooled by moving over a new surface. So this is very common at sea, where you have moist air encountering cool waters because it's moved over from land or from another part of the ocean that was warmer. It's cooled down by the, uh, the water and thereby reaches its, its dew point and precipitates. There's many other causes of fog as well, but those are two particularly common ones. So that concludes the section on clouds. Hopefully clouds make a bit more sense now. So let's go on and talk a bit about precipitation, which is, of course, uh, the thing that clouds are probably most well known for. So precipitation is any product of condensation of atmospheric water vapor that falls under gravity. So any type of water that is falling from the clouds due to gravity is precipitation. So precipitation includes rain, snow, sleet, 
ice pellets, hail, drizzle, and, and many other words that are used in different cultures to describe somewhat different forms of precipitation. And basically these just refer to the physical state of the precipitation as it's falling. So it's all water, but water has many forms. It can be liquid, which is classic rain, but it can also occur in various solid forms and sort of semi-solid, liquid, solid combinations, which account for many of these different words. So as I mentioned before, precipitation occurs when clouds accumulate sufficient condensed moisture droplets that they begin to condense into sizes that are too large to remain aloft, uh, and therefore they fall. Or it could also be the case that the updrafts that keep the existing uh, water droplets aloft uh, stop for whatever reason, and therefore the whatever water droplets uh, are still present in the cloud will, will condense and fall down. Of course, just because water starts falling from the sky doesn't necessarily mean it will fall to the ground, because obviously if it comes from a higher altitude as it falls, the temperature of the atmosphere increases, thereby reducing the relative humidity, other things being equal, and thereby potentially allowing the water to be to evaporate once again. And so it won't necessarily fall to the ground unless it's able to fall far enough. Air turbulence tends to promote precipitation because air turbulence causes more of these condensed water droplets to collide with each other, which produces bigger droplets, which then increases the rate at which sufficiently large droplets form uh, that are able to fall to the ground and uh, produce rain or other forms of precipitation. So that, that's often why unstable conditions like thunderstorms or lightning, which are the product of highly unstable atmospheric conditions and air turbulence and so forth, uh, are associated with a lot of precipitation. So wind and rain kind of go together. Raindrops vary in size from a fraction of a millimetre to about nine millimetres in diameter. I think I said before, two millimetres is a kind of an average, but they're significantly larger, as I mentioned, than the uh, moisture droplets that, that form clouds. There's a common image of a raindrop which you know has that classic teardrop shape. I think a lot of people know that that's not what a raindrop actually looks like. That shape is the product of water falling from some sort of aperture and the surface tension with the water that sort of pulls it backwards into that uh, sort of teardrop shape. But but because that's not what's happening when water falls from the cloud, there's no there's nothing that it's connected to, nothing that pulls it up into that shape. Water droplets either have roughly a spherical shape if they're quite small, or if they're larger, they become more oblate, which basically means they're like a uh, like a squash circle, kind of like a donut. Not those donuts that have a hole in the middle, you know, the ones that are just like an oblate shape. If raindrops get too large, they tend to break up in the middle into smaller droplets, so there's a limit to how big they can get. Whether precipitation falls as rain, snow, or ice pellets or something else depends on many factors, but particularly important is how warm the air is. So if the air is very cold from clouds all the way down, then precipitation is more likely to fall as snow, that is actual ice crystals that have had a chance to form you know, larger like snowflakes or at least partial snowflake structures, which then fall all the way to the ground. On the other hand, on the other extreme, if the air is fairly warm, or maybe not extremely warm, but at least much warmer above freezing point all the way down, then the, then the precipitation will just fall as rain. But there's other combinations in between. So, for example, you might have a very cold layer at around the cloud, which is where the precipitation forms. So initially it might form snow, but then it might pass through a relatively warmer layer uh, below, which can cause the snow to melt into basically rain. But then if it passes through a colder layer still, so this would be an inversion layer when the air gets a bit warmer and then colder again as you go up. So if it passes through an inversion layer, it could cause the snow to melt, but then refreeze more, more quickly and form uh, ice pellets. So that's one way you could have hail, which are little what, pellets of ice rather than crystals, what you have when you have sn actual snow. 
There's other possibilities as well, such as the warm layer could be not sort of in the middle, but right near the ground. So you could have a situation in which the snowflakes sort of just start to melt or just melt as they hit the ground. But then if the surface, they, they could sort of melt just before they hit the ground. But then when they hit the ground, the ground could be slightly cooler and then causing them to refreeze. So that's, that's freezing rain. And there's many combinations, as you can imagine. And it's actually quite complicated as to exactly what form water takes in different combinations of temperature and and humidity and so forth. So I'm not going to go into all the details of that, but just be aware that basically it's all the sort of the same thing when it comes to the clouds point of view, it's moisture falling out of it in the form of raindrops. But what happens to it between that, the falling out of the cloud and hitting the ground kind of depends on what form the precipitation takes. Okay, so let's conclude uh, this first part by talking about air masses. And this will form the basis for what we get into next time when we start talking about fronts and mid-altitude and tropical cyclones and then getting to thunderstorms. I, I've mentioned the concept of an air mass once or twice, but I haven't defined it, and this is where I'm going to do that. So in meteorology, an air mass is a volume of air that's defined by its temperature and water vapor content. So basically temperature and humidity. The difference between an air mass and an air parcel, which I defined previously, is basically just one of size. I mean, it's a bit more than that because an air mass is more of a meteorological term, whereas an air parcel is more of a fluid dynamics term. But we didn't really get into all of those technicalities here. For our purposes, an air mass is just a very large mass of air that covers like hundreds of kilometers or maybe thousands of kilometers um, and that has reasonably consistent temperature and humidity uh, properties. This is distinguished to a parcel of air, which is a much, much smaller volume of air, maybe a few meters or a few hundred meters across. And they're referred to in different contexts. So parcel of air we talked about in the context of atmospheric stability. Air masses we're talking about in the context of fronts, cyclones and storms, as we'll get into. So an air mass is a big, big body of air. Now, air masses are classified according to latitude and according to their source as being either continental or maritime. Basically, air masses can form in very cold environments or sort of moderate environments or warmer environments, and they can also form either in maritime or wet environments over the ocean or in continental or relatively drier environments. And so that's how they get their names. For an air mass to form, it has to have uniform properties over a wide horizontal area and must be stationary over what's called the source area, which is where it forms, uh, over its source area for a long enough time to, do, to be homogeneous over such a large region. Also, it has to travel as a fairly homogeneous unit and retain these properties. If it sort of mixes with the existing surrounding air or breaks up into pieces, it's not an air mass anymore. So because of these requirements for, for horizontally large uniform properties over a wide area, the typical source regions for air masses are oceans, large deserts, and large forests because, well, they are fairly flat, wide, open areas where you can have an air mass form. It's harder to form in areas that are broken up by many mountain ranges, for example, or have a diverse range of uh, vegetations because you're likely to have different properties over those different regions. Again, this is not hard and fast rule. Air masses can form under uh, many different conditions, but these are typ typically you're looking at oceans, deserts, and large forests. So as I mentioned, they're classified by latitude and by where they form. I'll just go through the five main ones that we're going to look at. First of all, maritime polar, which is abbreviated MP. Maritime polar, as the name indicates, form in polar regions, so closer to the pole. Polar, perhaps somewhat confusingly, doesn't mean at the pole. It just means closer to the pole. So typically we're talking more a temperate area. Think like Europe, North America, closer to Canada than Mexico northern China kind of area. That's what's meant by polar. So it is a bit confusing in that context. Maritime, obviously, meaning uh, over the ocean. Polar, as I said, referring to the latitude. 
Now, there's also a continental version of polar, which is CP for continental polar. And it's basically at the same latitude, but over land. Now, conversely, there's also a tropical version. So there's maritime tropical, MT, and continental tropical, CT. And so tropical, we're talking generally between the tropics. So that's 30 degrees latitude uh, on either side of the equator. So this is everything from sort of, if you draw a line through the middle of the US, through to a line that includes most of South America, but not the bottom. This line passes through uh, basically halfway through the Mediterranean, passes through kind of between North and South Korea, roughly. That's at the 30 degrees north, 30 degrees south passes basically along South Africa and it cuts off the bottom of Australia. So that's the tropics area. Anything that any air masses that form within that range called tropical. So they don't have to be like right at the equator to count as tropical. And whether depending on whether they're over the ocean, they're maritime or continental. Because so much of the tropics are over ocean, maritime tropic uh, air masses are quite common. The final type of air mass is uh, continental Arctic air, which is abbreviated CA. And needless to say, it is very cold. There's no distinction here between continental and maritime because in the Arctic, it's all frozen. So therefore, it has the property of continental air, which is being dry. Not surprisingly, maritime air has the property of being relatively moist because of all the evaporated water that occurs over the oceans. Tropical, whether it's maritime or continental, is always much warmer than polar air, which is cooler. And then, of course, you have Arctic air, which is very cold. So none of that's very surprising. There's also an equivalent form of the um, continental Antarctic mass as well. But most of the sources you'll look at are focused on the northern hemisphere. And so I've just sort of followed that by focusing on the northern hemisphere. But it's sort of similar in the southern hemisphere. You just sort of have to flip everything. Okay, so we've got maritime polar, maritime tropical, continental polar, continental tropical, and continental Arctic. Those are our combinations. And basically what happens when we get interesting weather phenomena, which we'll talk about in the next episode, is that different masses of air collide with each other. And interesting stuff happens when that happens because you've got atmospheric instability, you've got warmer air going over cooler air, and you've got them mixing together. You've got fronts, which are the basically lines between air masses, and very cool stuff happens at those. When you've got unstable air, you're going to have thunderstorms, vertical clouds occurring because of the moisture condensing out of the air. When you also consider the fact of the Earth's rotation, the Coriolis effect, that gives rise to rotations of storms and also cloud structures, which gives rise to mid-latitude and tropical cyclones. Um, so a lot, the point is a lot of interesting stuff happens when you start to think about air masses and start to think about those air masses moving and then colliding together. And basically, it's the movement of air masses around that gives rise to most of the weather phenomena that we think about. And it is that that will form the topic of the next episode when I talk about fronts and different types of cyclones, thunderstorms, and then conclude by looking at tornadoes. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully you found this episode interesting. If you liked what you heard, you can help support the podcast by going onto Facebook and typing in the Science of Everything podcast and giving our page a like. Another way you can support the show is to give the podcast a favorable review on your favorite aggregator of choice, such as iTunes or wherever else you download your, your uh, episodes. If you would like to financially support the podcast, and I do appreciate all of my generous donors, you can make a one-off PayPal donation, or you can go to the, our Patreon page and pledge a recurring donation there. The links to this should be in the show notes. Finally, if you'd like to make suggestions for future episode content or ask questions or just give any other feedback, feel free to give me an email. My address is fods12 at gmail.com. That's F-O-D-S-1-2 at gmail.com. Thanks once again for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.